What has been a very full week for me, a week that because of a number of factors has been a shortened week in terms of study and preparation for God's Word. And that always means Sunday school is the thing that suffers most because I'm looking to focus upon morning worship, also upon evening worship as well. And so I've given a lot of thought to Romans, but I haven't given the sort of thought that would lend itself to the sort of confidence to say, well, here's exactly what we have in this passage, and it can mean nothing other. Not that, not that you can always say that. That's not always the case. You have to give tentative judgments. And um, even though I'm going to bring out in the morning worship, you change your mind about things, and it would be foolish not to. Be foolish not to. Uh, I think, again, I'm going to say, it's, at least it's in the notes that I prepared, that... Um, I know there's things about the Bible I don't understand and things that I think I understand that I really don't and things that I get wrong. My problem is I don't know which part of what I say is right and which is wrong. If I did, I'd correct it right away, but I really don't. And sometimes it's just a passage of time and growing in the knowledge of God's Word, growing in sensitivity to the truth of the Gospel that brings some of those things to mind. Um, Paul's letter to the Romans has been like the most examined letter of all the letters of the New Testament. Most commentaries are written on it. In fact, most modern commentaries, I mean, they all, they all begin the same way. You're asking, why another commentary on the book of Romans? Haven't we enough? Every commentary says that in the modern world, in the modern age, because just so much has been written on the book of Romans. Every year, new commentaries come out. You can never really keep up on all of it. Sometimes uh, most of the commentaries say what has already been said, but sometimes there are things that are kind of new and novel, thought-provoking, interesting, get the wheels of your mind running to say, is that right or wrong? Is this a a proper rereading? And, you know, the idea of rereading the book of Romans and coming up with different understandings of it, again, it's not a novel thing. And I don't think it's always a wrong thing. Think of Martin Luther. Martin Luther began his teaching as a a minister of theology at the uh, college church in uh, in Wittenberg um, with one understanding of the Book of Romans. In fact, it was a difficult understanding of the Book of Romans. He came and he read terms like the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And uh, he believed, as there was a strain of commentary and a strain of understanding, that the righteousness of God speaks of the characteristic of divine righteousness that basically sends you to hell for the smallest uh, transgressions of the law. That that's what Paul's talking about. It's the righteousness you have to measure up to. It's the righteousness that brings God to judge you uh, for your sins. And he felt he found an unrelenting, harsh. Uh, judgment, uh, uh, vindictive, wrathful uh, God uh, as he read the book of Romans. And we would not have a Reformation if he did not reread that and come to a different understanding. And later on in his life, he explains it in his, in his uh, I think it was the table talk that he um, gave a full exposition of how his understanding changed. It came away from seeing righteousness as ju- God's judgment, what we call distributive judgment, uh, upon all that opposes him, uh, the kind of thing that he never found himself able to measure up. And he says he hated this God because um, he understood he was a sinner and all of the wheels of the Roman Catholic system of indulgences or of um, confession 
and ways to get your sins forgiven, he found that those things didn't satisfy his own conscience. Uh, so he would go to his father, confessor, and pray, and to confess ad nauseum all manner of sins. Uh, you remember the story, that you've seen it in the movie, where his father, confessor, said to him, Martin, at least you could bring me something interesting to confess. And these are like the smallest uh, things of, 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 of motive and going down to all detail that Luther felt he had to come clean with every single thing before he could ever find a gracious God. Um, and so it was a very oppressive uh, understanding he had of the Book of Romans, and thankfully he came to, to a different opinion. But his course is argued today was his opinion, the correct opinion. It's his idea that the righteousness of God expressed in the Book of Romans is um, the righteousness that Christ gives to us because of his obedience, what Luther came to call an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves. Again, I believe that that's the truth of Scripture that really cannot be denied. I'm not always convinced Romans 1 was the place it's found. I think Romans 5 teaches it far more clearly. Also Romans 3, um, um, about God being just and the justifier of him that had faith in Jesus. And also the quotation from Genesis 15:16 that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And then, of course, in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, you have the contrast between Adam's disobedience and Jesus' obedience. That through one man's sin entered the world, death came upon all men, for that all have sinned. But now in one act of righteousness, that is Jesus' act of righteousness, his act of obedience, the many are made righteous. Well, how are we made righteous? Through Christ's obedience. Because his obedience was not just for himself, because he was an obedient son of God who never did anything wrong. He was sinless. But his obedience is for us. And there's a, you know, that passage in Philippians chapter 3 that clearly teaches it, that uh, Paul said that um, he seeks for a righteousness not his own, but that which is through faith in the Son of God. So there's many passages of Scripture that I think we can go to to clearly assert that that is a biblical teaching. But to Luther get Romans 1, um, 16 and 17 right on the subject. And that's what I've been mulling through. And that's what I've been endeavoring to uh, come to some understanding of. And I thought what I would do this morning, instead of necessarily uh, giving all of my opinions, which are still somewhat forming, I have tentative conclusions, but not maybe not uh, the sort of conclusions that I'm all that confident in making public, is... Um, Oh, although I may, I may. This, this may. This is not how things go this morning. But um, I'm thinking of just broadening the subject uh, in terms of the theme of justification by faith and how Romans intersects with that theme of justification by faith. Now again, if you know of justification by faith, which we should know a lot about if we were at the... Um, meeting down at uh, Hudson Valley United Reformed Church when five pastors spoke on the five solas uh, and a lot of that touched upon the theme of our justification our justification um, by faith uh, that was my part in the thing coming out of God's grace uh, to uh, lost and needy sinners and then um, in Christ the object of our faith in whom we believe all to God's glory and all emanating from the text of scripture uh, that teaches uh, this way of life and this way of justification um, so we should be well uh, versed to some extent from what we know of scripture what we heard 
just a couple of Sunday evenings ago. Um, maybe you're aware of the fact that Luther called the doctrine of justification by faith the article of a standing or falling church. He thought it was that central, that important to the life of the, of, of the people of God, to the life of, um, of the church. And um, but then Luther said a lot about a lot of things. And he also said that it was the doctrine of free will that was the main thing that divided the Protestant Reformation from the Roman Catholics. He told Erasmus, you alone have come to the heart of the matter. So the heart of the matter, he says, on one hand is free will. Um, the most important thing is the doctrine of justification for a standing or fallen church. But, you know, the reality is that throughout the history of the church, you read Calvin's Institutes on the subject of free will, and he says, hardly a man in the history of the church has gotten this thing right. And he was right. Hardly a man spoke well on the subject of the will. Um, and, again, it's all a question of definition. I think that's why you got a lot of uh, funny ideas and things that are expressed on the subject of the will. That's another story. But also the doctrine of justification by faith. Though I think you can go through the church fathers and find multiple instances where the doctrine Luther taught and that we teach and that is in our confession was taught by those folks. They also said a lot of other things that maybe we say, how in the world can you say that? That does not seem consistent. Um, and part of it is the fact that uh, the Bible was in Greek and some of those church fathers, particularly the Western fathers, were not well versed in the Greek language. Uh, St. Augustine being one of them, one of the major movers and shakers, did not uh, know Greek well. That's one thing. Um, many of the Eastern fathers that did speak Greek, I think, spoke more clearly on the subject of the way of uh, justification. Um, but I wanna, what I want to do is I, I want to say something about justification, something of its place within um, the life of the church and something within our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. So if you will, uh, turn with me in the back of your hymnal uh, to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's question 70. Nope, that's the seventh commandment. Maybe it's the larger catechism I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, I think it might be the larger catechism I'm thinking of. But verse 33, uh, question 33, that's the one. Question 33. And ask the question, what is justification? And um, it says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and received by faith alone. Now there's a couple of additional phrases that are found in the larger catechism, but I think this is more than adequate to get a, a read on the church doctrine that came out of the Reformation on the subject of justification uh, by faith. Uh, and the first thing I want to point out to you, um, look at verse uh, question 33, and then let's compare it to question 35, which asks the question of uh, what is sanctification? And um, you know, note that justification is an act of God's free grace. And in verse uh, th uh, 35, is sanctification is the work of God's free grace. They both are rooted in God's free grace, but in one case, it's an act. It's an act. It's something that is the act uh, of declaration. In fact, uh, that's really what the word means uh, that's used for justification is an, a declaration of righteousness, a declaration 
that you are righteous. It's the decree of a law court. It's a, it's a forensic term, a legal term. We all watch forensic files or forensic uh, you know, law. Uh, that's, talking, that's talking about the law. It's talking about the legal system. It's the act of the judge that declares someone before him to, not to be guilty, but to be innocent, to be uh, not uh, under uh, judicial condemnation. So justification becomes the opposite of condemnation in the scriptures. You're either in a state of condemnation or you're in a state of justification. So justification is the act of God's free grace. So let's try to put this together. Uh, The nature of the thing is an act. And that's not a work. Okay, but both of them are rooted in God's free grace. So the source is God's free grace. I'll say more about these things. But I just want to show you the distinctives that are, that are here. Um, but it's also an interesting thing when you look at question 33 and compare it to question 34. Question 34 is the subject of adoption. And adoption begins that adoption is an act of God's free grace. So one is, uh, both of them are acts of God's free grace. So adoption is very similar to justification in the fact that it's being called an act. Uh, I guess the thought here is when you go to adopt a child, you're given uh, adoption papers. And that's an act. Um, it's not that you're living together necessarily, you, don't, you haven't brought the kids home yet, but they're yours. Once you walk out of the adoption agency with the papers, it's yours. They are your children by a legal um, arrangement. There's a paperwork that is, declares uh, that you they are your children. I don't know if that's the law court that does that or some state administration, but it is an act, an act of some authority that says these children now are your children by reason of uh, this act. And so um, adoption is something that God does in terms of uh, um, receiving us as his children as a legal uh, permanent act um, that cannot be rescinded, can't be taken away. Um, it's written in stone. You may not feel that the heart of a, of a child just yet. You may not feel uh, the, the, the wonder of God being your father, but it is in, it, it's in writing. It's been sealed. It's been done. It's a reality because it doesn't depend upon your feelings. It depends upon God's own act. Um, and does it say free grace? Yeah, free grace. Free grace. Free grace for, informs both of them. So they're both... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, both the uh, adoption and justification are acts, not works, and both have their source in God's free grace. Well, what is the difference? Well, one is an act of God's free grace in which sins are pardoned. Look at that in verse 33, uh, question 33. When he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. So the pardoning of sin, the acceptance of righteousness, meaning righteous in his sight, has respect to what? What is it that leads to sins that need to be forgiven? They are violations of what? 
The law. Okay, the law. The standards of righteousness that God has put forth in his word as what we are responsible to be doing. We're responsible to obey him, whether it's a verbal word of command or whether it's something that's implicit in the law that he gives to Israel. Uh, Transgressions can be weighed by our adherence to those standards. So it's a violation of divine standard that now becomes forgiven. And then we are accepted as righteous also by that same standard. (laughs) The same standard of divine requirement can now no longer condemn us. Even though we may be imperfect, it is nothing that can ever again condemn us. Um, Because it's not for the sake of our, our, our righteousness. It's not for the sake of any goodness we have done or any performance we have uh, achieved, but the basis of it is only for the righteousness of Christ. It's what Jesus has done, not what we have done. Imputed to us and received by faith alone. Well, there's a lot that's there. Let's just try to uh, break it down. Um, So we have the nature of it being an act, not a work. We have the source. It's rooted in God's free grace. And then, I've already used the term nature, so, so let's say um, uh, the act. What is the act of our justification? Well, it's an act of pardon, and it's an act of reception. He pardons all our sins, all our transgressions, and then he receives our persons as righteous in his sight. So we're pardoned uh, with respect to sins, and where reception has to do with possession of righteousness. So what God does when he justifies, he pardons our sins, he receives us as righteous in his sight. That's what the declaration is. It's God's declaration, God's declaration that we are righteous in his sight, forgiven of all of our sins. And then, uh, let's move it on. He's, it says, only four the righteousness of Christ. What is the basis of God doing such a thing? What is the ground of it all? How in the world can this ever be done? That we who are sinners are pardoned? That we who are unrighteous in and of ourselves obtain righteousness? Well, it's um, the basis or the ground of it all uh, negatively is not us Uh, positively, but Jesus. Right? It's nothing we've done. Nothing we ever could do. It's only for the perfect obedience of Jesus. I think the larger confession says, the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ. That's not found in the Shorty Catechism, but that's what it says. it, It gives what is sometimes called by the Reformed writers, what's called the active obedience, that is the whole life of Jesus being obedient unto death, the death of the cross. And then there is the passive obedience, which is his dying. His dying, shedding his blood in our place. That this is the basis upon which God now, in justice, can declare sinners to be righteous in his sight. Because in that sense, uh, the, the justice due to our sins has already been meted out upon another. Jesus has received in himself the penalty for our sins. He's paid the price for our sins in full. And now because one has died for us, the judge can say, no longer are you guilty. You are innocent. But then Jesus does something more. 
not just he sends us out of court uh, with a pardon, but uh, he gives us actually a declaration that we've done everything required by the law. Because Jesus has rendered that positive obedience, his full obedience in living a life that we should have lived and didn't live, but and then dying the death that uh, we should have died, but that would have meant eternity uh, separated from uh, the presence and love and goodness of God. Um, so it's Christ is the basis of the thing. And then the, the method God uses to make uh, Jesus' righteousness ours and our sins to belong to Jesus is said to be imputation. Imp- imputation, imputed to us. So we have a, we have a method which is said to be imputation, imputed to us. And then, uh, along with the method, God imputing sin to us, there's a a means by which uh, this method becomes operative, and the means is by faith alone. That's a good definition of justification by faith. Very good definition of the things that got controverted during the times of the Reformation. Um, but there are, are a couple things I want to say about this. First of all, I want to say that justification by faith, as important a teaching it is, and it is a very important teaching, it's not the only important teaching about salvation in the Bible. In fact, it's not equal to salvation. In other words, salvation does not equal justification by faith. When the Bible speaks about salvation, it's not only justification. Justification is one of the things that is under the larger category of God's salvation. And again, the confession does seem to recognize that um, because it's this whole question of um, justification is placed in the catechism under what we find in verse 30. Uh, this is part of the application of redemption that Christ purchased for us. And again, some of these terms might be new to you, might not be familiar to you, but just uh, try to think it through with me. It says, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Now think about that. Christ purchased redemption uh, 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem um, in an act that was done in history. And we say that act that he did in history brings benefits to us. How does the Spirit give us those benefits? How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? In other words, if we go back into the catechism further, you're going to see that they deal with the way in which Jesus um, purchased us or he accomplished our redemption. And uh, there's a book that a theologian named John Murray wrote that was, I think, distills these concerns when it asks, when it, uh, the title of it is Redemption First Accomplished. That's at the cross. That's what Jesus did when he died for us and then applied. How do the blessings of that accomplished salvation now come to us? doesn't come to us in the first century, it comes to us in the 21st century, the 20th century, whenever we came to faith, and those blessings now come to us. Well, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? How does that redemptive work of Jesus get applied to us? And then it goes on and asks a bunch of questions about some biblical concerns. Now, I don't think it asks 
a question about every biblical concern, but ask questions about a lot of them. First is effectual calling. An effectual calling is, is described in uh, question 31. Um, and then the benefits of those that are effectually called partake of in this life. Now, let me just say effectual calling is language that we generally find in the Pauline epistles uh, that we are called, whom he foreknew, he foreordained to be um, conformed to the image of his son, and whom he foreordained, he called. And whom he called, then he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. So there is that call of grace. Um, the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews it's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's foolishness to the Gentiles but to those that are called both Jews and Greeks Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God you see you're calling brethren through the gospel we're called we're called by the gospel called to faith in Christ and uh, those who um, are, are saved are those who you will say are effectually called there's not just the gospel that says turn and believe but the spirit actually brings that about that there is the convicting of sin there is the enlightening of our minds there is a knowledge of Christ that is imparted there is a renewal of the inner life and the inner man and that's all the working of God's spirits and so effectual calling is the way in which uh, the, the spirit applies the benefits of the redemption in Christ now, what is called effectual, what's called calling in Paul's letters, you know what it's called in John? Anybody have any idea? The whole idea of being uh, transformed and called and changed, a renewed will. And what's it called in John? Born again. Born again. It's called new birth. It's a new birth. It's the same as regeneration. It's not talking about something different. It's talking about the same thing. The gospel call brings us to be born of God, to have new life in Christ. And just as born again is the way in which Paul, John, um, defines this transformation that takes place. We've said this often. It's not the only way in which that transformation of grace is described. But you know, we tend to seize upon born again because we come from a culture in evangelical churches where that became the principal premium thing. Born again Christian. That became uh, the title of what we are. We are born-again Christians. That's what uh, describes us as evangelicals. But again, Paul doesn't talk about born-again. He talks about being called. Um, He talks about, if any man be in Christ, we're called to be in Christ, behold a new creation. He uses the language of a new creation. Now, is a new creation saying anything different than the new birth is saying? No. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. There is this radical transformation that the grace of God brings. Now, Paul also speaks of um, newness of life. Um, and Jesus speaks about abundance of life. Um, Jesus speaks of eternal life. And John, in his uh, epistles, speaks of eternal life. And sometimes Paul speaks of eternal life. And then also speaks of the quality of the life of the age to come. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews speaks that we are partakers of the powers of the age to come. Is that partaking of the powers of an age to come different than a new birth? No, it is a new birth. That's what's being described there. That's the power of the regenerating working of the Spirit, making us alive together with Christ. And again, that's another Pauline description of it, and Peter also does it in First Peter. Resurrection from the dead. 
We've been resurrection, resurrected from the dead by the power of the resurrection of Christ. The God who raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand, that power is at work in us, raising us from death to life. Then you also can think of uh, being translated from, this, from the um, kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of God's dear Son. What's that translation mean? But again, the power of the renovating work of God's grace, the, the power of new life. Um, you were slaves of sin, now you become slaves of righteousness. What are all these things? What are they? Any, any ideas? These are descriptive what? Images. Images taken from human life, birth. Death, well, resurrection, we don't have a human life, but death we do. Um, translated from one kingdom to another kingdom. I believe Newton's, a new king is upon the throne. Uh, all these uh, slavery, uh, freedom, and liberty, and bondage, uh, these are all images taken from uh, human life to describe that which, what it is that God does. Because you see, there's a multiplicity of ways to describe it because the act of God's working is just so immense the salvation of God is just so huge that no one human image can fully grasp all of its dimensions so God gives us lots of different dimensions to understand it to understand what the new birth is about right? you all with me? do you think justification would be any different? Again, I know this this comes a little bit closer to home. I guess evangelicals are not, at least Reformed evangelicals, are not that tied to new birth theology to not see that it's but one descriptor of a larger thing that the Bible has lots of ways to describe it. But I think the whole matter of our salvation is also um, filled with different descriptors, all relating to different aspects of our relationship to God, our being received by God. And the very fact that the confession of faith and the catechisms, um, they bring uh, uh, together justification, adoption, uh, sanctification, uh, tells us instantaneously that uh, there are lots of things involved in this saving work of, of Christ. In fact, question 32, what benefits do they have uh, that, are effect, that are effectually called, what are these benefits they partake of in this life? So there are, are benefits that come to us. Uh, they that are effectually called do in this life partake of, and here it's justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Well, again, every one of these things that are mentioned, justification, adoption, sanctification, are images that come from different places in life to describe what God in grace does. Justification is God the judge. The picture is the courtroom. The picture is the declaration that God gives with reference to his people who are under condemnation, who are guilty of not being conformed to God's will and to God's ways. We're so unlike him in so many ways. And so we have a legal problem before the holy God. And God is, is a God who will um, be just. And so how can he be just and yet justify, declare as innocent and righteous and forgive and receive 
Well, he does it because of, uh, again, the work of Christ. But that's not the only thing he does because of the work of Christ. God is not only the judge, he's also the father, isn't he? There's a father-son relationship. And God is father. We are sons and daughters that have rebelled. We've left the household. We're outcasts. We're disowned. We're disinherited. And how do we get back into God's family? So here we're not in the courtroom anymore. We're in the household. Right? We're part of the household of faith, we're told. We've gotten back into the household. How did we get there? We got there because, again, because of Jesus. The same act of Jesus dying, the same act of his living righteously as a son. Because he was a son, Hebrews says, God perfected him through his sufferings. Um, so there was the perfection of the son in, in the way of his uh, life of obedience to render that perfect sacrifice unto God that brings, we're told, many sons to glory. The sons and daughters of God are brought back into his presence. Because sin has not only rendered us guilty before the law, it's rendered us outcast from the home, outcast from the family. What about sanctification? Now again, we have a theological concept of sanctification that uh, uh, really is with reference to our sin, but the language that's used in the Bible, it speaks of the whole matter that you find in the Old Testament about being clean or unclean. And that all had to do with the worship of God. Whether you were able to draw near to His presence. Right? Now, if you were unclean, you had to get clean. If you were unholy, you had to be made holy. And uh, when you think of the, those two things, and I, I gave justification the whole blackboard because this is where Reformed theology is. It's here. But other things really belong in this whole picture of our salvation. And with respect to sanctification, you have the matter of uh, holiness, and you have also uncleanness. They're not the same thing. Holiness has something to do with our, we might say, proximity to God. Because holiness means separation. God is wholly separate from all his creation. He's not confused with his creation in any way. He's above it, transcends over it. And yet we are made holy by way of our Distance to or closest, uh, distance from or closest to the presence of God. It's always interesting how things were taken from the common use of ordinary life and taken into the use of the worship of God in the tabernacle and they became holy. A holy tent. A holy, um, well, pots and pans and spoons and ladle, all that was made holy. It was set apart for the worship and service of God. It came into close proximity to God. And that's what holiness means. Now, we uh, to be holy meant to be near, to be close to Him, to be able to draw near. Uh, and there's only a certain measure of holiness in the Old Testament that they could attain. Because in the worship system, of course, you had God in the Holy of Holies, and yet the holy place that only the priests could enter. And they could do their work. And there were pictures there of God's communion with his people. Israel represented in the twelve loaves that were put on the bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence being in the light of the menorah light. So that Israel dwelt in the presence of God. That's all represented there in the imagery. 
But uh, really to draw near required greater blood than the blood of bulls and goats. As the writer of the Hebrews says, it's Christ's blood alone that can make atonement for sin. And he cleanses not just an earthly sanctuary, but the heavenly sanctuary that we that he appears in the presence of God for us. And we can do what? We can draw near. So our holiness is our ability to draw near to the presence. So again, this is seeing salvation in different ways, in different lights. Seeing salvation in terms of the courtroom, seeing salvation in terms of the family, seeing salvation in terms of the, of the sanctuary or the temple and worship and our ability to draw near. Oh, uncleanness, that's another thing. Uncleanness. Um, lots of things could be holy and yet get unclean, and not because necessarily of distance from God, but because of defiling agents that would come and make someone unclean. Like a dead body, for instance, says something. You can be a priest. You can be holy. You can be you know, the waver of, of, of um, uh, water had come upon your skin and your clothes were all cleansed, but now you got a dead body there. And so there was the defiling agent that made you unclean. 